the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Welcome back to the Cooper Vortex. I apologize for the delay in episodes, but after CooperCon, Russell and I took a break for the holidays, and then immediately after that, I moved from Boise to Denver. Anyway, enough excuses, back to the show. In this episode, I'm lucky to be joined by Ross Richardson. Ross is a professional shipwreck hunter, which is a pretty cool title, but on top of that, he is also the author of two great books, one of which is Still Missing, Rethinking the D.B. Cooper Case and Other Mysterious Unsolved Mysteries. In that book, he explores the D.B. Cooper case, missing person Robert Richard Lepsey, and the idea that the two are the same person. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Ross Richardson. So I always had in the back of my mind, there was this mythical character who jumped out of a plane, but really didn't think about it much until I started working on a book. And I had a concept for a book that was going to be, the original working title was Missing in Michigan. And it was people that disappeared from Michigan, plus aircraft and ships too. Um, I, I'm a shipwreck hunter, so I look for shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. So I kind of wanted to expand out some interesting historical and mystery stories. And I came across a character who disappeared, a gentleman disappeared in 1969 from a grocery store, only about an hour away from, from where I live. And that led me back to doing some research and in 1969, I pulled the newspaper articles for the whole the whole newspaper on microfilm for that era, for that time period that he disappeared and started going through them. And I noticed on every single headlines or every single front page, there was a skyjacking going on. So I kind of thought back and I thought, you know, there was a guy who skyjacked a plane. And this gentleman who disappeared in 69, there's not a ton of information out there. So maybe I'll augment the story a little bit about this, about the skyjacker. So I kind of got back into the D.B. Cooper thing. And that's when I found some interesting things I didn't know about, especially from the FBI website. That kind of really got me thinking about the D.B. Cooper case and maybe thinking a little bit outside the box on, on who it might be. So when you first started investigating D.B. Cooper seriously, it was because of Dick Lepsey? Yes, yes. Uh, Robert Richard Lepsey, the missing man from Grayling, Michigan. Um, he was, he, that kind of led me to it. I was looking at that and then I saw all the hijacks and that sprung something in my mind. And then I sat down for a good e- an evening. I'm a volunteer librarian at our local library 
library. So I had a slow night. So I sat down and really started going through the information and, you know, the, the suspects that were out there, there were quite a few suspects and everyone you look at, it's like, wow, yeah, this is the guy, you know, then you look at the next guy and oh, oh man, this is the guy. So there were a lot of suspects out there, but you know, what really struck me is the FBI's webpage where they said, Hey, uh, Larry Carr and a few other of the field agents feel that this person did not survive the jump. And they also questioned his parachuting ability, which I thought was pretty interesting also because it was always considered he was an elite skydiver, an expert uh, parachutist. So I kind of started looking at things a little bit differently, I guess. And you chose to believe the FBI that, you know, he most likely died in the jump. I think it's an option. It's an option. And if we look at it, nobody has seen this guy since the jump. The only clues we have are the placard found by the hunters and the money at Tina Bar. And that's a very interesting find that tells a lot right there. And that money is within a few miles of where that plane crossed the Columbia River. So since then, there's been, you know, nobody has a $20 bill. A lot of suspects have come forward, but I think we can talk about why, what's going on with those suspects and, and kind of the phenomenon that's happening with that. But there has been nobody who has seen this man. And when you add up all the pieces of the jump, all the pieces of the puzzle, you see that, you know, it doesn't look good that somebody would survive that. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. You said in your book, Still Missing, that the one thing all the other suspects have in common is they were seen after November 24th, 1971. And yes, all the. Oh. I, 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 there is a gentleman who is another missing person who even has a better story, but we'll talk about him down the road. So go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I just, I thought that was a really interesting point to make. You know, if you're going to believe he died in the jump, obviously Kenny Christensen, for example, was seen after that, as well as most of the other suspects that you know people could rattle off or are on the Wikipedia page. Do we, do we want to talk about those suspects a little bit, just in a, in a macro view? macro view kind of an overall um look at how how i feel about those suspects i guess hell yeah i'm down for that okay um you know there i tell you what each suspect is pretty darn good when you look at each one man they've got you know they they match the mugshot their or the uh the, the fbi sketches their story is good. Their ability is good. There's all these wonderful things and each suspect on, on, on their own is pretty good. But when you put them all up on a screen together, there's like 20 of them and you start to see patterns develop and the patterns are, uh, are you, are you familiar with uh, stolen valor? Yes, Where I am. People claim to be ser have served in the military and I think a lot of these suspects, either people who admitted to be D.B. Cooper or people who say, hey, my my, you know, relative, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, whatever you want to say is D.B. Cooper. That is a form of stolen valor also because in its base, it's getting attention and recognition for really not doing anything yourself. 
So you can come forward and say these things and in your own mind think, hey, I'm, I'm special. I'm getting the most att- I'm on national news now. I'm getting the most attention I've ever gotten. That's very appealing to some people. That's very seductive. And I mean, it releases dopamines in your brain. There's a science behind it that, you know, why people would do do this and why people would believe believe that. And, you know, that gets back to belief structures where it almost becomes a religion where people say, you know, I know this person was D.B. Cooper. When they looked at me, they gave me this look and they were kind of telling me I'm D.B. Cooper. You know, it's like, hmm, that's very interesting that more than a couple people have said that. Um, yeah, I've read anywhere from between 12 and over 900 people have confessed to being D.B. Cooper. You don't get away with a crime like this by admitting it to strangers in a bar. But back in the day before it was, you know, cool to be a Navy SEAL or whatever, that was what you did. Hey, I'm D.B. Cooper. I still have people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I met D.B. Cooper. One, one lady told me she met him in a cocktail party in Birmingham, Michigan. A guy came up and he admitted he was D.B. Cooper. Well, that's an easy thing to admit. You know, hey, I'm this mis- mysterious guy. I've got money. You know, it's a it's a case of stolen valor. Now we see that these days as Navy SEALs. I mean, you know, almost every bar you go to has a Navy SEAL in it, you know, and there's only been a couple thousand like <laughs> SEALs ever. So I think there is something interesting when you put all those together that that just seems to be something people do and not, to, you know, denigrate or tear down people. But also each one of these suspects has a silver bullet whether it's height, whether it's eye color, whether it's, you know, complexion, um, or not fitting the basic description of height, weight, hair color, eye color. Uh, Each suspect has their own silver bullet. And then if you look at the suspect promoter, then you have to look at motives. And I think a lot of that is, I don't know what you would call it in this, not really stolen valor, but stolen notoriety. Um, something so I, I just find that very interesting and i think there's there's the two suspects that stick out to me that kind of don't match that are the two suspects who are missing persons and that would be robert richard lebsey and mel wilson yes mel wilson who has a great story his story is even better because he just disappeared a couple months before and put two hundred thousand dollars in counterfeit money in a barrel and threw it in a river i mean there's a whole crazy story behind it that you know says yeah this could be the guy but he has blue eyes so that's a you know that's an attraction it's almost you know a silver bullet in that case but he's pretty interesting pretty pretty interesting story there pretty interesting character i think well what does dick lepsey have going for him um, well, you know, there's there's no real connection other than he sort of looks like the composite sketches like every other suspect does, though. Um, he's a missing person. He disappeared two years before the skyjacking, which may be a reason he was off everybody's radar. Plus, he disappeared here in Michigan. So out west, there would have been nobody to put those things together. So in a ca- for a case like this to be uns- remain unsolved with as much attention as it's getting, there has to be 
a special circumstance that allows the suspect to remain hidden from us. Now, do I think it's Robert Richard Lepsey? I don't, you know, it could be, it very well could be. He's to me, he's as strong as any of the other suspects, but there's nothing there saying he is connected. But I do believe that the DB Cooper is someone of similar circumstance to Robert Richard Lepsey a missing person, very obscure for some reason off the radar who left nothing behind because even to this day, you know, well, many people have come forward, but we just haven't got that really dynamite suspect. And you actually invested a lot of time in researching the Dick Lepsey disappearance. I did. I did. I tracked down about everybody who was involved in the disappearance who's still alive, which is like, you know, six people. You know, he disappeared in 69. I was only two years old when he when he disappeared. And it wasn't a widespread case. And the people I talked to really kind of forgot. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that now. He he disappeared. You know, now they're looking back thinking, well, this is weird. He never came back, you know. Do you His mind? family never saw him again. Do you mind telling us real quick how he disappeared? Uh, yes, yes. He was, uh, well, a little background history he grew up in chicago and his family had a vacation home in northern michigan and grayling michigan which is kind of in the middle upper part of the lower peninsula it's a small town and they would vacation every year and about his senior year in high school he decided he wanted to stay in michigan and so the family said okay they relocated up here to their cottage and he went to grayling high school where he met his wife jackie now, Jackie and um, Jackie and Robert Shalevsky, they got married about a year after high school and soon had four children, three sons and a daughter, Lisa. And he started working in the grocery business and he worked for a market called Glenn's Market, which was a, a, a market just beginning uh, in northern Michigan, but really spread out and, and was growing. So eventually he got his own store in Grayling to manage. Now, he was in his early 30s, maybe 31, 32, when he got the store. Can you imagine it's a good-sized grocery store, and you're a manager at that age in charge of, you know, 20 people in the store. I mean, that's a pretty big accomplishment, I think. Uh, He was known to be very bright, maybe above-average intelligence, you know, good with people. And a uh, pretty sharp guy. Well, October of 1969 rolled rolled around. And let's see, it would be October 29th. He called his wife, who would usually meet up for lunch. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go for a ride at lunch. You know, I'm having a stressful day. I just want to go for a ride. Uh, I'll meet, you, meet up with you later. And... A couple hours later, he called back to the store and said, hey, I'm going to be gone for the rest of the day. And that's the last anybody's heard of him. His car was found a few days later at the Traverse City Cherry Capital Airport in Traverse City, Michigan. That's about an hour from Grayling. And it was found in the parking lot unlocked with half a pack of cigarettes on the dash and the keys in the ignition. Um, according to Glenn Catt, the son of the founder of Glenn's Market, uh, the Michigan State Police and the Grayling Police Department worked together 
to try to solve this case. And I, sh- I should add this too. There's a lot of different aspects. Um, later that day or the next morning when the people came in, he wasn't there. So people came into the store and they found the safe was jammed shut. So they had to call a locksmith who took hours to get in the safe. And when they got into the safe and ran an audit, they found about $2,500 was missing. Now, Glenn Cat said, you know, he took 2500 He could have easily taken 25000 He could have held receipts for a few days. He took just what he needed to get out of town. So when the Michigan State Police and the Grand Police Department went to the airport, and interviewed people there. They said a man matching his description um, bought tickets with a final destination of Mexico and left that day. And, you know, it was unclear whether he was in the company of a female or not. There's no indication that was just the rumor, but there's no missing female from Grayling, Michigan also. And I kind of tracked down, um, some stories behind that and a person who was rumored to be having a relationship with him and and she basically denied everything. Mexico is an interesting choice. Only because Cooper yeah. asked to go to Mexico. Yeah, it's one of those weird things. And, you know, because I asked his daughter, well, did, did he speak Spanish? And she says, not that I'm aware of. And that's, so that's kind of a weird choice too unless he wanted to get away from the snow and get out of the country because he had taken money you know and yeah i i don't know that doesn't make uh, to me it doesn't make a whole lot of sense i guess and it was a total shock to the family they were they were devastated the kids had no idea um i became friends with lisa lepsy and she let me into kind of what it was like and i mean you know it was losing a parent you kind of hope they're coming back but day after day it just gets worse and worse um have you seen the sally jesse Raphael clip on youtube i sure have i was definitely going to bring that up uh you know so even years later they they were shocked they were theorizing they were wondering you know, what was going on. So, I mean, to me, what really appealed to me or to, or what I really resonated with me is the loss, the heartache, you know, their dad, he's gone and there is no answer. It seems kind of fishy, you know, to me. So, you know, part of me wondered, Hey, is there a chance he was maybe killed? And this was all set up to make it look like he left. But um, I've really got no indication that that was that was the case. He just seems to have vanished. What do family and friends think about him potentially being the hijacker? Uh, Lisa says, you know, the pictures when she saw the pictures on TV, eventually the composite drawings, her and her siblings thought there was a resemblance to their father. Uh, A co-worker said that those sketches look a lot like him. Um, you know, some people said he did have a little bit of a wild streak. His sister said, Hey, I don't think he would take people hostage and and terrorize people like that. My brother would not do that. So, you know, I think there's, I I think it's mixed. I think some people think, you know, maybe he had a little bit of a, 
a streak that he would do a, a, a caper like this. But then some people don't, and and most people think he does resemble the sketch. So it's not a clear, it's not clear one way or the other, I guess. You know, I look at it this way. Here's a family guy I was hearing about from Lisa, his family life, and what a good father he was. You know, he would read poetry to the kids. They would do picnics, you know. They would take trips all over Michigan, visiting sites and going to the beach and everything. Uh, sounded like a really nice guy, you know. But then again, uh, he appears to have taken money from his employer and hopped on a plane and split. Well, that's kind of a wild move to make, you know. It definitely is. And I was thinking about Mexico also. It wasn't uncommon for dudes to just kind of bounce from their family at that time. And why would that you need true. to go to Mexico? Why couldn't you? At that time, he just could have gone to Texas or, hell, even Wisconsin, and no one would have known where or, he was. Or, you know, his his kind of his hometown of Chicago, I guess that was another weird thing, is he was very close to his family. And that was kind of the big question is, you know, even when his mom passed in the mid-'70s, you know, why didn't he come home? Um, and Chicago's a big city. But he didn't, and and maybe it had to do with the fact that he had taken money. Maybe he was going to come back after uh, the statute of limitations. That's what uh, Glenn Cat said, is he thought, he always thought he was going to show up with an envelope of money and hand it back to the Cat family and laugh about it, you know, because that's the kind of guy he was. And he says, but he just never came back. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in your book, too, that uh, the guy didn't seem that upset. He was like, I'm waiting to see him again. I'd like to talk to him. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's a great, uh, Glenn Katz, a great guy. Uh, I've talked to him a few times about this and you can just tell he's a leader, uh, very successful, super nice guy driven at a young age. He, he shared with me, he was 19 when, uh, Lepsy disappeared and managing his own grocery store. So he was in a neighboring town manager, you know, at 19 years old working, these days, uh, 12, 14 hour days with his own store. And he had to go over to the Grayling store and help whip it into shape, you know, at age 19, that's pretty amazing. And yeah, I think looking back at it, you know, he, his, his attitude was, Hey, he could have took 25,000 if he wanted to, he just took what he needed to leave 2,500. And yeah, I guess that's an interesting look inside, inside his mind you know, and, and why would somebody do this? And I think, you know, he had a stressful job. Um, maybe he was having some marital issues and, you know, got married at a young age. Maybe it was difficult to get divorced and maybe he had some impulse control issues to do some crazy stuff. Did you ever read that Max Gunther book on DB Cooper? Is is it um, I, how I did it or what is the? I can't. Oh my gosh! I have so many of these books now. I can't remember the exact title of Max I, Gunther's I book. You, I I think I'm aware of it, but I have not read it. Max Gunther's book's the one written in 1985, where the DB Cooper writes him a letter, and then his widow essentially comes forward and finishes the story. What really gotcha. happened? D.B. Cooper, what really happened? Yes, yes. No, I have not read that. Well, there's it, it talks in there about how he becomes 
kind of obsessed with the series of magazine articles about just abandoning your family and starting a new life. So it's interesting that Lepsy just abandoned his family and the Max Gunther book talks about it. Of course, the rest of the storyline is completely different, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, and that was not uncommon back then. I mean, it was just different, a different time. Of course, you know, in the seventies, everybody just got divorced. Um, you know, heck, the, the divorce rate was like uh, 50, 60 percent in the 70s. But back in the 60s, it was it was much different. It was, hey, you hang in there, you stick in there. And so I find it that the curious choice to, you know, go out for a pack of cigarettes and never come home. But that did happen back then, I think, a lot more than it does now. Now divorce is acceptable and people move on. But back then, I, I just, for some reason, it wasn't an option for him. Yeah, and disappearing today is much, much more difficult. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, back then, yeah, you could hop on a plane, you just give him a fake name, and boom, you're gone, you know. And they went to, you know, they found somebody fitting the description, but obviously they gave a different name, so they could never prove that it was, you know, him. Then he and runs dollars. out of money in Mexico and needs an extra two hundred grand. Well, I I guess I don't understand. You know, there's that missing two years, if that's the case. And yeah, that's a that's a blank slate. I was really hoping. So the the idea of the book was to stir up stir things up in the media and try to get somebody to come forward and say, Hey, you know, my cousin always talked about killing this guy or, Hey, that sounds like a guy, you know, in California, uh, I knew who, you know, confided to me this. Uh, we were hoping that it was going to create some type of tips so we could find out what happened to this guy. Cause he, he fell off the face of the earth, you know, and, and it just didn't generate anything. You didn't hear anything back after the book or any of the press or anything? No one said, hey, I have a Dick Lepsey story for you? No, no, it was, it was, he, he was gone. There was no, no trail, which, you know, he, he easily could have gone to Mexico and miscalculated and got killed right away, robbed. I mean, that's within the realm of possibility also, um, but nothing, no, not a, since he disappeared that day, he was not heard from. There was nothing. Um, I, I heard this kind of a secondhand account that, uh, so his wife filed for his life insurance and had him declared dead. And the insurance company worked out a deal that if he ever, you know, came back, she would have to pay back plus penalty and it was quite severe and she was given a limited amount, but they worked out a deal with the insurance company and rumor has it. The insurance company sent an investigator to try to track him down because there were rumors of him being involved in marijuana uh, growing in Mexico and dealing. So, um, and this was just a couple uh guys from law school meeting up and they didn't know each other's stories and like, Hey, what are you doing in Grayling? 
they kind of heard the story. So these are little whispers of things I hear that, you know, are just kind of hearsay. Wasn't there also some mysterious in- insurance investigators that contacted, was it Lisa? Lisa, yes, yes. Uh, she's really freaked out, still freaked out by that. The guys kind of bowled their way around. And, you know, it seems unusual. The payout in the early 70s, I think, was $8,000 or something. And, you know, now that's still the equivalent of probably 30000 now, I think. That sounded about right. 30000 maybe forty. I doubt that. But So the payoff wasn't great, but yet the um, they did a credit search on his social security number through a friend down, down south. And these guys showed up within a couple of days knocking at her door saying, hey, you know, have you seen your dad? Which kind of really wigged her out. And these guys did not seem uh, legit to her. And she wasn't able to get any information on him or anything? She was. She got a card, and she called Hancock Insurance, and they said, hey, we don't even have this department here. We don't know who these people are. This department doesn't exist. We're not sure, you know, what's going on. Now, it still could very easily be insurance investigators. I don't I don't dismiss that, but it is unusual that they would, you know, for such a small amount many years later, you know, have two guys fly down, rent a car. You know, it seems like a lot of work. Seems like that would cost the company more than eight grand. Yeah, yeah, well, it cost them some money. And, yeah, I don't know, it was just off. Tri- they think it was tr- uh, triggered by a credit search. They had a friend at a hospital who worked at the uh, collection department, and they could run people's credits and credit and things like that and that's what they did she said hey can you you know do the social security number my dad i want to see if you know anything shows up and nothing did nothing the account was inactive since 69 or whenever it, every, everything was uh, closed off but could an insurance company even be monitoring closely to see if someone's checking that i don't know back then i mean this is well this must have been in the 80s when that happened i'm trying to remember yeah i think it was in the 80s when it happened but i mean that was so pre-internet so i don't seems a little weird to me it it struck me as really odd reading the book that the insurance company would be watching so closely so long after the fact and like you said, the the dollar amount was small. It wasn't like they paid him out, you know, a $5 million life insurance policy. Yeah, the, the insurance company negotiated, you know, very strongly. And they, she just didn't get that much money. And she had a, you know, pretty tight uh, contract she had to sign saying, hey, I need to replace, you know, all this money. I forgot the details, but it wasn't, it wouldn't be pretty if he showed back up. But she must have been confident he wasn't going to show up. So maybe something in her gut was telling her something, you know, because this would have been um, before the the court dealings would have been before the Sari, Sally Jesse Raphael show. Which I think was 86. Yes. And I think the men in black happened in the late 80s, 87 or 89. I... Uh, Got too many dates floating around in my head to, <laughs> to remember it, but I think that was about right. I think it was a little bit after that. Did 
Dick Lefty have any parachuting experience? None that I saw. The the only military connections would be um, he was in ROTC in high school, and Grayling is home to Fort Grayling, which is the biggest National Guard base in Michigan. Um, but there's no indication he parachuted or, you know, had any training. The argument of he was a skilled, you know, special forces uh, parachutist to he was an, an amateur. And I can I, I can see where it would be somebody with not a lot of experience who would try to pull this jump off. Why do you say that? As far as I know, this jump has never been replicated. Nobody has done the same jump. Okay. Now, the key is many people have jumped out of 727s, used the same setup, things like this. But in this case, there's always the third dimension. We always see the two dimension, but when we add the third dimension, things get a little fuzzier. And the third dimension here is it was nighttime and nobody in their right mind is going to jump out of a back of a plane at night, not knowing where they are and just do a random jump in those conditions. I mean, anybody with any amount of training or common sense uh, would not do it. I mean, the temperatures, that's a whole other issue of dealing with temperatures, jumping out of the plane. And then what do you do after you hit the ground or water? and just that's a big no-no when you're parachuting especially at night is just randomly jumping i mean you don't know if you're over a lake a river mountain range you're just randomly jumping out and you know a lot of people i i call this the cia trained ninja theory that he was the man he was the mastermind and he just knew right where he was you know he had this all planned out and i no i don't think so I mean, you're in the plane, you're trying to get the gear together, you're trying to figure out how to tie that money onto you, you're trying to figure all these things out, you're not keeping track of where you are, and time flies, and you've probably been in stressful situations, time goes by at a different pace when you're under a lot of stress than it does normally, so to time out where you would be would be extremely difficult, so you're blind jumping at night, and I don't know anybody, any parachutist you would say, now, they'll tell you, hey, I'll jump out in loafers. I'll jump out with the same setup. I'll jump out of a 727. You say, hey, you want to hop into a plane? I'll fly you over Washington State in November, pitch black, and just have you jump out. Well, that's that's where we kind of separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Nobody's going to do that because you just don't know where you're going to land. Don't forget it with dangerous. a non-steerable parachute. Exactly. You know, and... This case is a, a classic example of people finding arrows on the side of a barn and then painting bullseyes around them. So people will say, well, that, that parachute, yeah, he was, you know, in his CIA ninja training, he would feed it slowly out. And so it would be a soft release, you know, so there's excuses for everything. But having the, picking the wrong front pack, you know, that says a lot that, maybe this guy wasn't as experienced as he should be and the blind jump. I mean, that's in those weather conditions and he was wearing a suit. Now 
you know, I've even heard some people say, well, he had thermals beneath it. Well, if he did, maybe his CIA mind control, he was able to turn off the ability to sweat because you're in a stressful situation and you're wearing a suit and then you're wearing thermals underneath it. Come on, he'd be sweating his butt off. Yeah, and the stewardess would have commented he was sweating profusely or something. Yeah, but but instead he seems to be very calm, which is which is very interesting and maybe says something about his state of mind. And and I for the life of me cannot figure out his state of mind. I mean, I can't imagine sitting there doing this and remaining calm and not freaking out, you know. I totally agree with you. And I, I agree that I think it's one of the most interesting things about it is everyone comments about how he was calm, cool, and collected the whole time. And the stewardesses immediately after comment that he was polite. Uh, well, do you want to hear something I find a little interesting? Of course. Um, if you go to suicide hotlines or the Mayo Clinic on depression, and check under the signs of suicide. Here are some of the signs of that a person's suicidal. Uh, sudden calmness. Suddenly becoming calm after a period of depression or moodiness can be a sign that a person has made a decision to end his life. Uh, dangerous or self-harmful behavior. Potentially dangerous behavior, such as reckless driving, indicate that a person might no longer value his or her life. So maybe this was an individual who was pushed to the point where they didn't care if they lived or died. If they might want to, you know, maybe they're, they're so sick of their life. They're the alone. It isn't what they thought it was going to be. And they're at the end. And even though they're in this incredibly stressful situation, because you hear of, uh, Kenny, or who was the uh, who was the next guy six months later? Um, Richard Floyd pilot. McCoy. Richard Floyd McCoy. That guy had a brass set of balls, and I understand he was sweating pretty good and pretty nervous. So, you know, and here was a guy, a combat veteran, experienced. I mean, you know, that type of daredevil personality and he was pretty you know should i say moody um uptight stressed out so you know what type of person can sit there and remain calm i don't know and again i i can't get inside that mindset to make that one work you know but that is interesting that hey somebody decides to end their life they have a certain amount of calmness that everything's going to be okay no matter what because they're they're done so you think Cooper didn't care if he lived or died? I I don't know. I I guess I look at it it could be a possibility. Um it could fit the narrative of somebody who's, you know, done it at the end of their life. This is, you know, they just they see the the scene skyjacking, you know, a couple weeks earlier and say, "Look at the attention this guy's getting." My life sucks. That's how I'm going to go out. I mean, it's a po it's a possibility. I mean, it could be somebody also thinks, hey, I'm going to get away with this. But 
boy, it, they couldn't be too experienced with skydiving because nobody's going to jump out of that plane at night and not know where the heck they are. So what do you think of the planning of the caper? Do you think it was super well planned and thought out and the, you know, he did it on that specific date and time and chose everything? Or do you think it was just kind of like, uh, let's do this. I think, I think it was pretty well planned. I don't think it was planned to the point where he's a mastermind and has everything figured out. I think he had a plan. He executed it. He had a little bit of luck. He had some bad luck. So I I think it was decently planned out. It was done by a person who's fairly intelligent and could get it as far as it went. Took it a pretty long ways. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the only unsolved skyjacking ever, right? I mean, I don't think there's another unsolved skyjacking, unsolved skyjacking in the entire world. I believe that's correct. I mean, that's pretty incredible to this day. We're still talking about it this many, you know, almost half a century later, we're still discussing it. So yeah, that's pretty amazing. He took it about as far as you could possibly take it. What do you think about the flight path? You brought that up earlier and I made a little note. Do you think the flight path's accurate? I don't think it matters. And here's my point. I got to get my notes out to, to take a look at this. So the flight path. So let's backtrack the money from Tina Barr, because that I think has done just huge damage to this case. The idea that the the money didn't come up by dredge. There's no other way that money got there. There's no signs that any other way would have, provided us what we with what we saw and you know what pushed me over the edge on this was seeing that news footage the extra footage and the guys finding the shards you know 10 feet 15 feet away from where the where the bills were found and they're still finding shards like it was ground up and there it was now people will say well look at the rubber bands were intact and these things well yeah but they were encased by the bills around them that rotted away slowly so had this been five years later, hey, there hardly would have been any money left. Had this been five years earlier, there probably would have been a lot more money left. It just has been rotting away slowly over time, and that's the way the money was at that time when they found it. Um, and I'm still looking for somebody to come up with a theory that makes sense other than, hey, somebody was, you know, put it in a paper bag and hid it there as a joke or, you know, trying to throw the FBI off their off their uh, trail, even though the FBI wasn't on their trail and, you know, all these stories, but that was definitely thrown up by the dredge. So backtrack that further. That came from somewhere in the middle of the river where they were doing the dredging out in the freighter lanes. Now that plane either passed directly overhead or within six miles upstream of that point in the Columbia river. Now that river can deliver full size trees cars i mean it can move amazing things the current of a river so it's easy for a small package like that or person to be transported the the vehicle is the river that's what's going to move it to wherever it was to get sucked up and put there i mean there's no magic involved now 
the flight path as when the time jumps. Now, some documents were released recently before the uh, big uh, documentary on the History Channel in 2016, I believe. And in one of the, and some of these were from the Reno office of the FBI. And in one of these, they interviewed Harold Anderson, the third officer and flight engineer on the airplane at the time, the night of the skyjacking. So after he landed, and here's what this report says. It says Anderson stated that they had not reached Portland proper, which would be downtown, but were definitely in the suburbs or immediate vicinity thereof. So they're talking about when the oscillation happened. So again, I'll I'll read that. When the oscillation happened, Anderson stated that they had not reached Portland proper, but were definitely in the suburbs or immediate vicinity thereof. Now that's a guy in the cockpit the night of the skyjacking saying, we weren't over downtown, but we were in the suburbs of Portland. Well, what's, you know, just north of Portland there, the Columbia River. So we have the oscillation happening in the vicinity of the Columbia River within miles of that. I think that's pretty compelling. Another thing, Anderson, another part of the report says Anderson added, it had not occurred to them at the time to pinpoint the exact location and time of the oscillation. And of course, you can imagine being on that flight crew, you're worried about the bomb detonating and, you know, and, and you're not making it home to your family. You're, they got a lot of things going on in their mind. But I thought that was a pretty uh, amazing report that, hey, the jump happened right around Portland. Well, that's right where the Columbia River is. Now, where did he land? One mile from Tina Bar at Tina Bar, three miles upstream. It doesn't matter because the river would have moved that money to where it is. And just by a miracle, it came up through that dredge. And there's nothing in that money find that I see tells me it did not go through the dredge. I mean, a lot of people can't get their mind around it. And I think the citizen sleuths kind of, you know, saying there's no way it came through the dredge kind of put that paradigm in people's minds that they can't get around. But there's no way other way to explain those shards. What are your thoughts? I really have no idea. I think the money find is just so puzzling. I mean, like so many things with this case, it's all up for debate. I mean, there aren't, there seems to be no facts that you can nail down. Everything just sort of, you know, the only two things, the evidence after the hijacking are the money find and then the placard, which the placard has been debatable recently if it was even off the exact same airplane. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's the interesting thing about this case and the people that study it is it's, there's a lot of good debaters out there. And there's a lot of people who can make strong arguments, you know, either side of the ball. And and that can be good at times and that can be bad at times. But to me, you know, you got to keep it simple. The plane crossed the Columbia River just a few miles or less upstream of where that money was found. The money is in the condition you would expect it to be after going through a pump like that and you know the money found it was decayed to a certain point and there were shards around it 
indicating that it had been there for years. So to me, it makes perfect sense. Hey, that money landed in the Columbia that night, and that's where its final resting place was there on Tina Bar. Now, if the money landed there, you know, where did, where did Cooper land? And uh, a little bit of background for me, I was on our area's public safety dive team, so we would have to do things like recover drowning victims and things like that. So I know a little bit about it. And I tell you, rivers can do a great job of hiding bodies. Bodies of water do a great job of keeping, you know, these missing persons cases going. A lot of times water is a, you know, the water is the thing that hides these bodies. So it's, it's conceivable that his body was just never recovered from the Columbia. So you're not a fan of the official drop zone then? No, no, I, I was, you know, I often wondered it until I went through the interviews and again, the flight engineer, you know, he said that they had not reached Portland proper, but were definitely in the suburbs or immediate vicinity thereof when the oscillations happened, which is much further South. Now the FBI came up with their drop area and searched it, but they never found anything. So, you know, could they have been wrong and the flight engineer was right? Well, that's where the money was found. I mean, that's kind of saying, okay, yeah, that's, that's where it happened. I mean, I think there's, there's human error on what they selected as the drop zone and there's no proof anybody dropped. And let's say for sake of argument that Cooper successfully jumped uses you know his training to pull the cord exactly at the right time and land and, and get away but he was wearing a business suit when he jumped out of that plane that air is cold and i don't know if you, you've probably spent some time outside when it's cold when you lose your body heat or when you stick your when you're going down the highway and it's you know 20 degrees out and you're doing 55 miles an hour and you stick your hand out about 15 seconds, your hand is numb. I mean, it's frozen. So you can imagine him jumping out of a jet doing, you know, a couple hundred miles an hour and uh, that cold weather, you know, getting soaked in the rain. If he survived and hit the ground, he would have been, you know, looking at hypothermia within minutes, not hours. So that's going to also, you know, hurt his functioning on the ground, hiding the parachute, hiding the money. And, you know, within a few days, everybody's looking for this guy and there's never been a trace. So, you know, I don't buy, there was a radio people on the ground waiting. He knew right where he was, you know, now he jumped out and he vanished and there's never been a trace since, except for that money on the shore at Tina bar, which probably came from the dredge. There's no other reasonable explanation. Let's pretend that D.B. Cooper was like some super badass military guy. Is it a survivable jump? I think it would have to do more with luck than skill, meaning uh, average somebody with very little skill might be able to survive it. Somebody with ninja warrior training might die. It's just where you land. I mean, in that neck of the woods, and you probably are much more familiar with that area than I am. I mean, I look at it. it looks, some areas look rugged. Some areas look okay. It appears to be a lot of trees in that area. 
um, a fair amount of water. So really, if you just happen to land okay, I mean, yeah, you, it might be survivable. I was talking with my cousin's husband who did some uh, parachute training in the Air Force. And I described the parachute and he said, oh, that would be a tough one because you come down pretty hard. So at night, you would have a hard time judging when you're going to be able to land and roll. So he might be looking at an injury at that point, too. Oh, definitely. Especially he's carrying a bunch of gear around him that he just kind of haphazardly tied to himself. Um, so, yes, he could have he could have nailed it. He could have got totally lucky and nailed it. But you still got a 30 pound package of money you got to carry. Now, picture grabbing a, 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 you know, a package that size and try walking around the block with it, you know, and then, okay, you're wet now because it was raining. It's at night. The parachute was never found. So we have to ditch the parachute. It's when you add again, the third dimension to this, all these components, it's very unlikely he landed. Everything was perfect. He hit the parachute. He walked out with the money. Nobody saw him. And then, you know, and then oh, let's add another dimension, the money at Tina Bar. There's the money right there. Uh, and much more than probably was found has rotted away right there. And and we don't know if all of it came through the dredge, a whole package. Maybe they just dredged half the package of it and the other package. Well, then how'd the money get there? And, you know, again, a lot of people have ideas that, hey, he was... You know, he, he was crossing the bridge on the Columbia and threw it over. He did this, he, you know, put it in a paper bag. But again, it's a lot of finding an arrow on the side of a barn and painting a bullseye around it. You know, it's not, it's probably not feasible, possible, but unlikely. Do you think the bomb was real? No. Why not? No, no, I don't. I, th I think, um, the color of the flares for one being red, I believe dynamite's beige or, you know, experts have weighed in on this. Um, he didn't seem malicious enough to really go through with it. You know, at no point, I mean, he made the threat, but at no point was he hostile or, you know, shown he had the ability to take, take a life. I mean, it seemed more like a bluff to me in character with what he was doing, but I, that's, again, that's just, uh, just an opinion. Yeah. I think the, the overwhelming consensus is that the bomb wasn't real. I mean, what, what reason is there for it to be real? Exactly. Because it's a, it's another failure point in the caper. I mean, uh, you could detonate it accidentally. It could detonate accidentally if, you know, if it's jarred or, you know, the, you mix the wires up. So it makes no sense to, to have that. And, you know, I'd rather go to prison and get blown to pieces, killing a bunch of people. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm projecting that into what he's thinking, but that's kind of the way I see it. So no, I think. I mean, it could have been real, but I think all indications are it was not. Yeah, and, it, and when you say you have a bomb, is anyone going to say prove it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, they had a, a bad uh, a case earlier where the FBI botched it. Some people were killed. And I think at that point, they it came down from the top to, hey, you know, uh, give them what they want. We don't want to have another botched job of a bunch of dead people. And 
and that was kind of the the uh, attitude of the FBI at the time also, and the airlines. What do you think of the fact that there are two sketches, and they look pretty different? Yeah, yeah. Well, the original one, you know, my understanding is it's mostly the uh, stewardesses and the flight crew, or the, the, the stewardesses that seen him, it's based mostly on them. There's a great uh, video on YouTube, and I think you mentioned this before, where the it's done by the grandson of the sketch artist who did the sketches and there's some pretty interesting insight there and i think maybe he talked to some people other passengers and things and kind of revamped the second and probably to get a boost of publicity too they came out with this second um sketch that maybe looks a little more menacing so they added in a little more of the swarthy a little more menacing look to them and you know to kind of stir things up, kind of broaden the uh, broaden the net, and and you know to get more publicity. I mean that's what in a lot of cold cases they do is they occasionally go to the media with either a small piece of information just to generate that interest to get somebody talking because you know your best friend might not be your best friend, you know six months or six years from now, and then they might you know somebody might say ah, I remember when this guy did this and. So the two sketches, they're, they're interesting. Either one of them or neither one of them might look just like the guy. Um, what I find interesting is Tina Mucklow. Um, the History Channel documentary with Rackstraw. Mm-hmm. When they sat down with her, because, you know, you hear stuff about, about you know, her mental state. She seemed so clear, intelligent, and concise. And she looked right at her and said, nope, that's not him. I tell you what, I think she, I think if she saw a picture, she might have a great shot of identifying the person. I think she's that sharp. So at this point in time, she might be the only way to ever, you know, solve this case. How would this case be solved? Well, the DNA is really questionable. Um, you know, there's there's questions whether that tie is his, and then we go down the rabbit hole that, you know, it's kind of noticed the trend now is to find the engineer who worked for, you know, such and such company that had titanium and everything. But really... We can't uh, prove, you know, that that was originally his tie. Um, for instance, if you are looking for clothing, to steal clothing, if you're a nefarious person, uh, two great places you might look are hotels or airports. Especially back then, you might see a businessman about your size with nice luggage and he might head off somewhere, might go run to the bathroom, might leave his luggage unguarded. And that's a perfect opportunity to go in and steal somebody else's stuff that, that fits. You can see somebody's your size. So could that have happened? Possibly. I would see that more than him buying somebody's clothes. You know, we talked about the thrift store aspects of it. Um, you know, in the, in the engineering, 
I guess the idea was an engineer who worked with the titanium. I mean, there's a possibility, but there's no missing engineers that I'm aware of. So you don't put a lot of credit into the find and the tie, the uh, exotic materials and metals? I think it's a strong could be. It doesn't necessarily prove prove anything. Um, so there's some uses of titanium in 1970 that, you know, that could be explained. Uh, citizen watches had a Citizen X8 titanium chronometer, and it had a titanium body and back cap that you would have to change your batteries. So if you're in a hotel room and you need to change the battery in your watch, you might have your tie and you might put your tie up on a table, you know, sitting at a desk chair or you're at your desk and open up the watch and change a battery. Well, could there be titanium that would fall out a, a speck of titanium onto the, onto your tie? I don't know. Um, the Alvin, the deep sea research submarine was, uh, made out of a solid block of titanium by the general mills electronic group in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, 1964. So they had a huge, you know, giant block of titanium and milled that thing out to make the body of the submarine, you know, the one that went down the Mariana Trench. So that's a huge amount of titanium right there. And I think they're finding, you know, the sluice as they go on are finding titanium. You know, it was, there was quite a bit of it around and yeah, I mean, it could be. It's an interesting aspect, but I wouldn't hang everything on it. I wouldn't disclude anybody from anything to do with the tie. You know, by saying, hey, he didn't work in a uh, plant that, you know, made picture tubes or whatever. I, I think it's dangerous to disclude people because of those things, reasons. So what do you think it would take to solve the case? What What do I need to to show you to satisfy you? that it's my suspect. I think, I think it would be very compelling if, um, Tina Mucklow said, Hey, this is the guy I saw. That would be pretty interesting. The DNA is a possibility. And with, um, the improvement of DNA again, again, we go back to, was this his tie originally did his DNA get on it? I think there's a possibility of that. Um, but now they can test that DNA through the portal. And boy, I should have looked up what the name of the portal is, but ancestry.com and 23andMe, there's a portal for law enforcement that combines those two databases. And law enforcement can approach that. And they solved a number of cold cases, a number of uh, John Doe and Jane Doe cases, along with uh, old serial killer and rape cases using these portals and they can go back and get as far away as the eighth cousin, I believe, and narrow in from there. So, man, I don't even know my, you know, I don't even know my fourth cousins, let alone going that far back. So, I mean, these tools as we go forward are going to help us solve, you know, other cases. And there's a possibility we could get a strike here, but I, I, I just don't know what the FBI has and are they going to do any testing? I mean, they closed the case. Right, I think they said they're looking for a, a stack of 20s or a parachute. Yeah, yeah. 
um, which is pretty interesting. So the timing of that announcement is interesting also. Um, so I, I had written my book in about 2014 and we released the story nationally, November 16th, 2015. Um, in January, 2016, just a couple months later, the FBI received results from their lab related to a suspect. Now they never announced who the suspect was. They had said they had a new suspect. They did laboratory testing and the results did not resolve the case. Um, soon after that, within a matter of weeks, they decided to close the case. So I think that's pretty interesting that, you know, Robert Richard Lebsey, that story breaks November 16, 2015. Within a couple months, the FBI decides to close the case. Now, is there a connection there? They said they were looking at a, a new suspect, the first one that had come along in about five years. I think the the one before him was uh, the Marla Cooper's uncle. Uh, so that's some interesting timing also. And of course that kind of, you know, the, the Robert Richard, Richard Lebsey thing is it kind of faded away when the rack straw thing came up. Cause that was such a big, you know, and a well done production. Um, it's just too bad. The suspect was, you know, you know, again, a guy, this guy is not going to be admitting in a bar to strangers. He's DB Cooper. You don't get away with crimes like that, you know. That's just some guy blowing hard. Yeah, and Rackstraw was 28. Yeah, 28. Um, I'd have to check his, I think his eyes were green or, the, you know, they were, uh, there was a number of discrepancies there. I think tw- 28 is a is a big uh, age gap there for somebody that young and, you know, for them to see. So it's... Uh, yeah, what, what it's going to take to solve the case, you know. I don't think they're going to do anything with the DNA. I don't think they're going to approach Tina Mucklow. So unless somebody figures out how to uh, show her some pictures and she actually sees somebody. But it doesn't sound like she's interested in doing that either. It sounds like she's done. So unless the FBI releases the partials of the DNA and somebody comes in and hits that portal with it and sees if we get some matches. But but even then, that might not be his tie originally. That could be a used tie, as in he could have stole it. Yeah, and I'm not sure if the FBI even has a good DNA sample. I think they don't know if it's his even, and I believe it's only a partial that they've said yeah. in the past could rule people out, but not necessarily pin it on one specific person. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know what they have. It does sound like they had three different samples from maybe three different persons. But if they could match one of those partially uh, with somebody and prove they were on the plane. Um, there was an email right after the Rack Straw documentary. Somebody was, you know, knew the FBI people and they emailed back and forth. And, uh, uh, this is from, uh, Ann Dietrich, okay. who was a spokesperson for the case. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar with her. Okay. She had a follow email dated up, uh, dated July 15th, nine or uh, 2016. 
and it says, let's see here. This is to a, to a, a um, anonymous person. It says, oh, no, the timing was mostly fortunate. This person was inquiring about the announcement of the closing of the case. And she said, uh, History Channel asked us in the summer of 2015, and we declined. But in January, we received the results of FBI laboratory testing of items related to a person considered a possible match to the skyjacker. The results came back and did not resolve the case. Those items were related to the only new individual to come to our attention in the last five or so years. So that would be put it back to 2011. Uh, there are no additional leads to pursue, neither for that individual nor any others. For each of the other individuals we've considered, investigative results have either not supported continued consideration of them as a match to the 1971 skyjacker or not resolved the case. Starting in February, the FBI began the process of transferring evidence to the FBI HQ for archiving. And we agreed to do the documentary. Um, let's see, so we did a document knowing that when the necessary steps were complete, the FBI would be administratively, administratively close the case file. So what she's saying is this person, they did the testing, it didn't resolve anything, didn't disclude this person, and they decided to close the case. And that was two months after the Robert Richard Lebsey announcement was made, which uh, did really well nationally, I thought. I thought it was going to drive more, I thought it was going to drive more information, but nothing came from that. Even, you know, it played in Seattle area, California. I was hoping Mexico there would be, you know, maybe somebody coming forward with some information, but it never did create any tips. Why is this case still unsolved? Well, I, I think it's just uh, the perfect mix of special circumstances. Um, you know, you can't find a body, you can't find the person. Um, I think... In my opinion, it's somebody like Robert Richard Lebsey, who was off the authorities' radar, who did not survive the jump. They landed in the Columbia with the money, and their body was never recovered, as, as happens quite a bit with you know people in large bodies of water, and the Columbia is quite wide. Um, yeah, so without a body, all the evidence is gone, and... Yeah, this just didn't come to light, you know, and whoever this missing person is, you know, whether it's him, whether it's Mel Wilson, whether it's somebody we haven't found yet, for some reason, it just, the pieces just never came together. So if you had to put your money on it, who was Dan Cooper? Ooh. Well, I'd like to say Robert Richard Lebsey is leading the pack, but then every time I go back and listen to other people and their suspects, it's like, boy, you know, that sounds pretty good, too. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm just trying to offer a little bit of a different option and a different way of looking at the case and what's there. Oh, yeah. I think that's really important. Do you think there's a connection between the name chosen and the comic book by the same name. Possible, but unlikely. Um, 
you know, it is, it is a coincidence. Some people would say there's no such thing as a coincidence. I think this could be a coincidence. Um, you know, if you look at the suspect, no discernible accent. Um, so probably from somewhere in the Midwest, you know, Canadian possibly, but dark, you know, with a dark skin like that, hmm, they would, they would really stand out. I, yeah, if I had to, if you force me to put money on it, I would say no, but there's always that possibility. Isn't it? It is intriguing. It is really interesting. And I've brought this up before, but if you're going to give a fake name, you have unlimited choices. And to land on the same name of a comic book character that's a daredevil pilot and skydiver is a pretty incredible coincidence. Um, it is. It is. I think for that year, um, for the year of birth in the early, let's see, it would have been sure about 1940. I think Daniel was like the... 40 most popular name or something and cooper maybe daniel was 20 and cooper was like 40th so you run the percentages of of this of course nobody's been able to you know find a person in any of their suspects past that you know the 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 dan cooper um it, it is percentages um yeah i don't know i don't know the answer there coincidence not coincidence and yeah, um, until we find out who it is and backtrack it, we really don't know how it'll connect. But I think, you know, the thing is the could be's, we shouldn't get rid of suspects because could be's. So we shouldn't look at somebody and say, well, they're not French Canadian. They didn't have access to the comic book. You know, it can't be this guy. You know, if it has, if it's a guy with blue eyes, then you might be, or a guy who's five foot seven, then you might be able to say, okay, he doesn't fit the description. That's a that's a fact. But the maybes we got to be careful with the titanium, who we disclude, who we who we, uh, you know, aren't looking at because of those things. You know, and I think that's that's the drawback, and we get into opinion and supposition, and kind of divides everybody up as you well. As you well have seen. <laughs> I've seen a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are there so many suspects? Well, I, I think, and they're still coming out. Oh, Heck, yeah. There's been another suspect from Michigan that came out since since uh, Robert Richard Levsey, which is pretty mind-blowing. And then you hear some of these stories. But again, you know, I think it's just at the time was trendy. Uh you know, by people at the end of their lives to maybe, hey, I was this person. Or you or you BS with your kids, hey, I'm the secret guy, you know, that nobody else knows. It, it's just a case of stolen valor. You know, it's just pretending to be something, building yourself up that that you're not really. And I think that that happens with suspect promoters, too. They get a taste of that excitement of being in the news. Like, hey, the first time in their life, they're in national news. People are looking. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really certain now, you know, because if I was wondering before and I got these dopamine hits, now you better believe I'm really going to be sure that that it's my guy. So I think it's a it, it it's an inter interesting thing that's happened. 
to us to kind of watch this happen. But like I said, each suspect is really good, and each suspect promoter is extremely convincing, and they are sure. And it reminds me of a religion because they're so sure. It can't be not. It's just, oh, it absolutely is. I know for sure. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know, to me, that's a little scary. Do you think that there being so many suspects and so many different people pushing different suspects, does that help the case or does it hurt the case? Definitely hurts it. Definitely hurts it. Um, Because, you know, it becomes a a circus. It becomes, you know, it's not about solving the case. It's about getting recognition about getting getting approval and you know it takes away from hey just trying to figure out who this was and being able to lay this to rest um so i think i think it hurts that i think some of the stuff the uh and i love the citizen sleuths i i, I went over their website i looked at it i think tom k is a brilliant guy but some of the things has kind of let us down some rabbit holes that that have hurt the case and i mean it was a gamble it might have helped the case, but I think to lock into the titanium and say he has to be an engineer, he has to be involved with this, that hurts. I mean, it's a possibility, something to keep a mind open to, but it's a maybe. Dan Cooper, it's a maybe. You know, the Tina Barr thing, I'm still waiting for somebody to come up with a theory of how that money got there besides the dredge. I haven't heard a good theory yet. Just give me a theory. Well, I, I don't have a theory. I have no idea. <laughs> well, it's because there's there's no other way it could have got there and been in that decayed state. It was in a state of decay. All the bills around it were rotted away, and shards were found a distance enough away to make sure that that money had been there quite a time. It had been, you know, seasons had gone on, years had gone on, and there's nothing about the find that wouldn't be consistent with it going through the dredge at the time that area was dredged. Yeah. That money find is baffling. Well, it's, it's not real baffling. If you keep it simple, you know, it's when we add all the stuff that couldn't have came through the dredge. Well, then it becomes baffling. But again, I think that was a mistake made early on the idea that it didn't come through the dredge with no proof whatsoever you know, in an area where the dredge spoilings are by work done 10 years later. I think that that really hurt the case probably more than anything than coming to the conclusion, hey, that money was out in the the middle. Well, let's look at where he jumped. Could he have landed in the Columbia? According to, you know, the flight engineer who was on the plane who was interviewed that night, they were in the Portland suburbs. Well, that's right over the Columbia. You know, that's a guy in the plane. Again, that record, that was hidden away in the interviews down in the for the Reno FBI in their files. And, you know, nobody's seen it. It's all in the uh, the uh, Cooper vault there at the uh, D.B. Cooper Forum. Who I th- and I think that website is, you know, an, an amazing asset there. Um, yeah, the DB Cooper forum, very interesting. Uh, I, I guess I migrated. I came in the very last days of drop zone before they closed that down. 
and it was the wild west and then it went over to the db cooper forum it's still not you know great but that's an amazing amount of information done by different people who are you know looking for a solution i think that's did you know they opened the drop zone back up i heard i heard that yes but i have not been there have you been there oh yeah i check them all the time (laughs) (laughs) you know i i think so with the different suspect promoters and i'm not going to name name names but it's very interesting to see the differences yet similarities and how they approach it and the more a person tells me i'm absolutely 100 percent convinced it's my guy the more I realize, yeah, they're wrong. You know, I mean, there is no proof of anything. If if anybody had any proof, they would have went to the FBI by now. But, uh, you know, so we're all kind of kind of guessing and kind of feeling it out. But it's interesting how different people handle this and how this attracts people. But I think because of the vagueness of the case, And really, we know so very little about Cooper. We know little about his motivation. You know, we got a physical description, a little bit of his interaction with the crew. We don't know if he is a, you know, seasoned special forces parachutist or a a complete amateur, you know, who was in way over his head. We just don't know. And I think in the ambiguous, what what am I trying to say? Ambiguous. Ambiguousness of the case, you know, a lot of people can hide in that and kind of mold it to whatever their needs are. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think a lot of times people get tunnel vision and then they have confirmation bias. This matches my suspect and well that doesn't but that doesn't matter. Oh, but, I'm and and I tell you what, personally, I I totally get that. Oh yeah, you bet. Because you know, if your suspect's alive after after, you know, Thanksgiving 1971, I'm like, "Hmm." So I'm, I'm the same way, you know, but I, but I realize that about myself and I realize that about the case. It's just, you know, it's a fascinating thing and yeah, I would, I would like to see it solved someday. I just don't know that that's going to happen. Why doesn't this case get the attention that I feel it deserves? Uh, I think media fatigue um, you know, there's only so much you can do. Uh, if I look back, do you remember Sluggo's website? Definitely. Uh, brilliant. Again, a guy who took it, you know, who got in early, um, took it to the next level, but you know what? He's not from my understanding. I don't want to speak out of school, but he's just not into the case. And I think people cycle through it. Because you consume as much as you can, you take it as far as you can, and there's trends within this. And I, I watched the trends develop over the years, which is another fascinating thing. But you take it as far as you can, and then what what can you do? You know, I mean, it, it's a very hard case to solve. Um, you know, so for me, I, I was active to a point. I said what I had to say say and then I was on to my next to my next thing and you know I think a lot of people get to that point 
and, and I've seen some friends over at the DB Cooper forum too, that are just, you know, Hey, you're, you're running as far as you can. And then you, you, that's it. You can't go much further without getting crazy. And I think we've seen crazy. You know what I mean? I we've agree with everything who, uh, you just said. <laughs> we've seen people who maybe stuck around too far, maybe flew too close to the sun. And, uh, yeah, that's not a good thing too. So knowing when to back away maybe is a good thing. Yeah. I, I really admire guys like, uh, like George or Bruce Smith who have been in it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had dealings with both of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think keeping it active, you know, but then again, sometimes you can do damage to the case. I think there was, you know, certain things that have been done, maybe uh, how Tina Mucklow was handled may have damaged the case and turned her off to helping people. Like what, if you have a new suspect, you know, there's no way to reach her now or show her and say, hey, could you take a look at this? Because she she seemed to know when she looked at that picture of Rackstraw, she seemed, she seemed to know right away. Yeah, that's not him. So that tells me she's pretty sharp and she knows what this guy looks like. Well, do you want to talk about some other suspects specifically, if you have some time? Um, yeah, sure. Well, you, you sort of mentioned him earlier, the other Michigan suspect, Walter Recca. Yes, yes. What do you think of Walt's story? Are you real familiar with it? Um, y- yes, yes. I was, uh, you know, I was, when it first came out, um, I kind of looked at it and then I heard the details and, you know, I was on the D.B. Cooper forum at the time and like within a half hour, they found like two, two silver bullets. You know, I mean, it was done. So it was it was pretty easy to disprove. Um, again, here's a guy admitting to people he's D.B. Cooper. Uh, you're not going to get away with this crime by telling, you know, strangers or acquaintances you did the crime. I mean, it's just that's not the personality we're dealing with here. So I think that was a big red flag there. And then, you know, I don't think he matched the physical description well and he didn't have the the case stuff. So I, you know, I think it was a a nice guy who was fed a line of BS by a guy. And yeah, that's that's what happened here. Um, You know, it, it kind of parallels another missing person from Michigan, Jimmy Hoffa. You know, and all the deathbed confessions. There's been like six or seven deathbed confessions by people who said they were involved in his killing, you know. But at the end of your life, you know, sometimes it's easy to come up with these stories to kind of, you know, look for some validation. And, you know, it's one of these things, hey, you can't prove I'm not. So you can kind of get away with it, you know, if you're convincing. Yeah, that's what, a good what point. do you where do you put him on the uh, suspect scale? I don't know. I find uh, Walter very interesting. When I first heard it, you know, like you, I kind of saw on the, the forums and everything before I had really researched it. I I ordered the book and I watched the documentary. And after I watched their documentary, I came away sort of thinking that it was plausible in that. Walt's story is so much different than everyone else's. All the other suspects are, this guy was a genius. He had everything planned. It was so well thought out. 
Whereas Walt's story was just kind of like, uh, I wanted to commit a crime with a parachute. This was the only crime I could think of. And he <laughs> got lucky along the way. And so I, I, I just found it refreshing. Yeah, I do like that. And there are a lot of really interesting and mysterious things about a story. The Clayellum landing, I mean, it is, it is verified by a witness, but it's outside the flight path. So I don't know what to think of Walt, you know, and I've interviewed a lot of that, that crew and they are super nice, super honest and just great people. So I have, it's like, I have no reason to disbelieve them. I mean, I had that experience with the foremans also, you know, I went and interviewed the foremans and I knocked on their door thinking like, this is a bullshit story and sat there and talked with them for a while. And I walked out of their house like, okay, that's plausible because just, you know, when you're looking them in the face and they're telling you the story and you know, the foremans are the nicest people ever. So it's like, yeah, they're telling the truth. But, you know, was Walt telling the truth? Was Barb telling the truth to them? That's or the other, or the other 20, 20. Yeah, <laughs> that is, that is the other 20 suspects, you know, and, and maybe they're telling their truth. That's why they're convincing in their mind. It is real. And I think, you know, we've really witnessed that in the past few years, just in America watching, you know, everybody freak out on each other. You know, it's, it's people's, their own truth sometimes not reality on you know both sides of the ball i'm looking going oh my god you know i'm a little bit of a centrist i'm just going eight people you know but and maybe that's what happens here is people in their minds that is the truth and yeah it's it's tough they they probably are convinced that is the truth so what do you you know what do you take away from that what do you think about e howard hunt um, now he's a, he's a newer suspect. Is that, um, give me a little, refresh me a little bit. I haven't kept up on, uh, everybody. Who's the, who, who's promoting him and where is he from? Uh, Howard Hunt is from, you know, the Watergate scandal, one of Nixon's fixers, plumbers. I'm sorry, not fixers. Gotcha. Gotcha. And in the Watergate hearings, he's sitting there with sunglasses on. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, at, at what point are we throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks, <laughs> you know, um, you know, a French Canadian aerospace engineer who wasn't home for Thanksgiving, you know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I guess you know, I, I, I don't know enough about it to find a silver bullet, but that's what I do is I look for that silver bullet. To, and almost every suspect has it. Um, that silver bullet to kind of say that's not the guy. Well, the E. Howard Hunt, that came out, I want to say, like six, eight months ago. Uh, it's a book published by a gentleman who used a pen name, Nat Lufakit. Nat LaFoke. I'm sorry, I pronounced it incorrectly. Nat LaFoke. It's actually a pretty good book, and he goes really in depth into the sketches, why there are two sketches, and how that happened. Um, you know, even if Howard Hunt isn't your guy, 
I definitely would recommend checking out the book for his investigation into the sketches. I think it's worthwhile. The sketch, very interesting. And, you know, it, it could be. I, you know, far be it for me to, you know, to shoot people down. I kind of know each uh, suspect's weakness. But, you know, I still keep an open mind. I, and, I, and I have a feeling you do, too. You seem very open-minded towards looking at everything, not to, you know, let anything slip through. Yeah, well, my attitude is, you know, even if you have a ridiculous suspect, you know, let's say you are telling me it's Tom Cruise. You know, Tom Cruise pulled this off and you wrote a book about it. I'm willing to read the book, <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe you did you weren't on to the right guy, but you did some work that's interesting and worthwhile that's in that book. So that's kind of my attitude. Um, I've read some some books that weren't the best and suspects that aren't the greatest, some theories that are poor, but you know, maybe there's one thing in there that's valuable. It's kind of the way yeah. I look at it. All right. I got nope. two other newer suspects for you here. Okay. James Klansnick. Are you familiar with him? Give me a brief rundown. Um, Boeing engineer worked on the supersonic transport project. Uh, lived in, uh, Enumclaw, I think in Washington, uh, looks remarkably like the sketch. He's the right age. Uh, he's photographed in, uh, hydraulics and pneumatics magazine working on an airplane, you know, in a very similar tie matches the sketch real well. It's, he's sort of come to light, I'd say in the last 18 months or so. Oh, interesting. No, no, I'm not. I, I think I've read just a little bit skimming through things, but I haven't uh, gotten anything in depth. He's definitely interesting. I check it out. Then the other new suspect that's pretty interesting is William J. Smith. Have you seen any of that? The Railroader? A little bit. Yes. I think I think you had a podcast on that. Yes. And yes, that was pretty interesting. Um, you know, which, yeah, makes sense crossing the Columbia or, um, you know, being able to move quickly because whoever it was, didn't hitchhike or hike out of there. You know, if they landed where they think the person was supposed to land. So that almost does make a little sense that they could, you know, hop on a train. How about Joe Lackage? No, not familiar. Worked at Nashville Electronics. Bill Rollins, uh, it's his suspect. Gotcha. No, no, I'm, I'm not, uh, boy, I haven't been, I haven't been paying attention lately. I've been working on my stuff, my new stuff, I guess. I'm ashamed of you, Ross. I, I know it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough, enough of the, the newer suspects. Dwayne Weber, that should be a name you're familiar with. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, again, if we go back to the suspect promoter, I think we all had run-ins with his wife. And, you know, again, everything seems to be connected in, in yeah, yeah. Maybe there's an over-connected, you know, nothing's that connected. 
I don't know if I'm making myself clear on this. <laughs> Everything seems to be threaded in such a way. It's like, wow. But, you know, but if you step back and look at it as, okay, is this a case of stolen valor? Somebody's getting attention for something, you know, something they created. Is this feeding into this type of thing? So, you know, I think he fit the physical description as in height, weight, eye color, hair color. Maybe you could argue he looked like the sketches or didn't look like the sketches. The FBI discluded him. I believe they did a DNA test and he was excluded as a suspect per their website. They weren't interested in him. And then, you know, if you look at the promotion that went on with him, you see it was kind of a, uh, a circus type promotion, you know, a little, a little over the top for me. Yeah. And that story was always malleable. It just seemed to fit whatever new evidence came out. Yeah, whatever the flavor of the day was. And I think the money find, you know, the the throwing it in a paper bag over it, boom, right there. You know, the shards, okay, boom, shards, that proves that isn't true. So that kind of sinks a whole ship. Yeah, and my, my biggest problem with Dwayne Weber and then the exact same thing for Richard Floyd McCoy, they have very prominent ears that stick out. And if you're talking about you have huge ears or a huge nose or you had this incredible Jay Leno chin, when you're doing a sketch, that's the first thing that person's going to say. He had these big ears that stuck out. He had a huge nose. And yeah, so and if, those guys with features like that, I'm like, okay, nope. If And now if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, and you might know this from reading reading the book, but when they were doing the composite sketches, they were looking at, okay, here's a page full of chins. Okay, it looked most like this one. Okay, and, and that's, you know, okay, look at these ears, you know, and they had different samples of got people's ears um, in, the, in, in, in a book they were looking through. Have you heard this? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, they could see, okay, here's a guy with big, here's a guy with small ears, and, you know, there's, they would have different pictures of guys. I heard there were prisoners, a lot of them. And, and that's what you do. Okay. His eyes looked more like this. And then that's how the sketch artist would do it. So you're right on the ears. Um, and, and again, it, it just, you know, it goes back to the promoter. You can almost, you know, X some people out just by the overzealous promotion of them. It's almost become such a part of their psyche to be that this person is this, you know, person, yeah, that's just, that's a little scary to me, and and it's happened to multiple people. It's not an it's not a standalone occurrence, you know. Speaking of overzealous promotion, what do you think of Kenny Christensen? Um, again, if you go back to the basis, it was his brother thinking that his brother kind of looked like the sketches, and then um, it ended up in someone's hand, and boy, they ran with the ball, you know they. They returned at 99 yards for a touchdown, I guess. But, you know, not a good suspect because you had to have makeup, a wig, um, you know, the, the the lifts in the shoes. You know, you had to do all these things to turn them into, even to fit the, the physical description, 
And it just does not make any sense that this person would do it, especially to his own airline. I mean, it does not, you know, but again, it was all started by a brother who had no, who just said, Hey, my brother kind of looks like this guy. And then, you know, kind of took off from there. And again, we're, we got a person getting attention, um, you know, and a lot of publicity for, for riding this horse, you know? And I think that's very seductive to some people. And that's, that's what happens. You get an overzealous, um, you know, suspect promoter. What do you think of Wolfgang Gossett? You mentioned him in your book. Yeah. Intriguing guy, really interesting. Um, again, you know, uh, if you're, does he seem like the guy who would, you know, tell his kids about his exploit or does he seem like the guy who would tell his kids to look like a cool dad, you know, a cool guy. And that's what I think happened is he went to his kids and you know, what, what better way to say, Hey, I'm the guy who did this, you know, unsolved crime kind of looks like him, you know, it's a great, it's a great case. Another case of stolen valor, I guess. I would consider that. Um, again, if, if he had a 20, you know, there always seems to be, oh, he does, but it's hidden in a safe somewhere else. And this, well, you know, show us the money. Show me the money. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> so, you know, interesting suspect. Um, I'd have to go back and remember why he was kind of discounted by everybody. I think there was maybe an eye color issue or something. He fit fairly decent, but it didn't, it, there, there was a silver bullet there. I just don't remember what the silver bullet was. It's an interesting story, the Gossett one. And he's definitely a wild guy. I mean, he was oh, yeah, a cool guy. An exorcist and a paranormal radio show host. <laughs> oh, oh. You see, that's what I love. You know, I'm almost more interested in that than the D.B. Cooper aspect. It's like, whoa, this guy was something else. You know, and, and a veteran. And, you know, with... Uh, some pretty interesting military experiences too. Yeah. He's, he's a suspect I find very interesting, but also one that's very difficult to get information on. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the personality type, you know, yeah, that's a tough one. Again, this, this crime was, if, if the person got away with it and they survived, they did a great job of keeping their mouth shut. Because one thing I notice on most of these suspects is they're blabbing to everybody who will listen, including strangers, that they're T.P. Cooper, you know? <laughs> and there can only be one. How about the Zodiac Killer? I think, again, we're back to the weaving too many threads. You know, and everybody's connected back. Through, and, I, and I've heard a, a couple different versions of this where it's every crime seems to be tied together every unsolved crime become becomes interweaved with the others um yeah i don't i i think this was a more of a i don't know it didn't it doesn't seem like a serial killer crime like a malicious hatred type of crime so that kind of separates it from that from the mo of the zodiac yeah, I agree. I mean, Cooper pulled this off without hurting anyone, and the Zodiac murdered people and then didn't yeah. steal their stuff. 
Yeah, he straight so, up was into murdering people and, and you know, and delivering carnage. Two totally separate MOs, I think. Yes, although I have done three shows on three separate suspects that are both D.B. Cooper and the Zodiac Killer. Well, you know, again, and I think I heard one of them in the John Bonet case was mixed in and there was a lot of stuff and it's like, you know, okay, okay. I just, I don't think there's any tie-ins with anything else, you know. There does almost seem to be a trend lately of tying unsolved crimes together. Yeah, I would say that's a good way to, of putting it, a trend. Um, because you'll see trends within the case and certain type of suspects will become that type of trendy, trendy thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I just... It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's nothing... There's no meat on the bone for for me, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that the Zodiac Killer is DB Cooper. It'd be a long shot, and you know, yeah, I think I think you you see that over time, and I think we talked a little bit earlier about a suspect where everything's tied in. He's tied in with everybody. Everything's you know he knows this person that you know, and, and there's just. That's, I think, a, a, says a little more about the state of the mind of the suspect promoter than perhaps the suspect promoter. But I'm always willing to be proven wrong. Well, Ross, what haven't we covered? Boy, I think we hit, hit a lot of stuff. I think, you know, for me, the fascination is the people involved. Um you know, and, and who the suspects are, how they're promoted, the suspect promoters, the trends. I mean, I, I find that fascinating in this case. And also the investigators. Uh, a lot of people putting their heart and soul and coming up with really good information. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame this hasn't been solved. But then again, you know, we wouldn't be able to talk about this and talk about all these other things also, you know, and different angles and different, different approaches. I think that's what I really like about your uh, podcast is we're able to look at it, you know, things, a lot of different angles in a non-judgmental form. And me, I, I can be a little bit judgy, so I'm glad you're, uh, <laughs> you're a little more open-minded. But <laughs> I pretend to be. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Oh, well, I got you. Um you're a shipwreck hunter. Yes. How does somebody become a shipwreck hunter? Well, uh, so when I was a, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a embarrassing story. So when I was really young and I would go to the, our, our elementary school library, I got reading books about the Titanic. Then I seen the movie on, I mean, we're talking five, six years old. And then I, you know, saw the movie A Night to Remember. And, you know, I really got, I don't know, fixated is the right word, on shipwrecks. And we had a pool, and I was always a very good swimmer. So I used to build model ships and then sink them in the pool 
and then go down and look at them. You know, I mean, you're talking seven, eight years old. So I've, I've always had this weird, I don't say weird. I've always had this fascination with, with shipwrecks in some form. Well, uh, fast forward to 1997 and the movie Titanic comes out. And I said, you know, I'm pretty fascinated with shipwrecks still. And I wonder what's out there. Well, my son was playing uh, in a basketball league downtown across from the library in a YMCA league. So he would practice for an hour. I would go over to the library and start looking through. And I came across this book of Great Lakes shipwrecks. And I looked through the the towns that I would go to the beach in the summer. I'm like, holy crap. Then I started reading about these shipwrecks that were still lost out there. And I was like, whoa, there's big ships sitting you know, right off the places where I swam and nobody's found them yet. So I started researching and got involved in the actual looking and looking for missing aircraft. And that kind of led me to where I'm at now, which I, I, I look for shipwrecks every summer and I found a few and then I'm able to share their histories with people. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I was looking at your website and some of those pictures underwater nuts yeah yeah the uh you know it used to be lake michigan you know if you had 10 foot visibility that would be a good day i mean it was a very dark murky place but we got a invasive species called quagga mussels which are a small almost a small clam looking thing and they cover the shipwrecks they even cover the bottom of the lake but they clean it up so now we get 50 foot 100 foot 100 foot plus visibility when we're shit you can see the whole shipwreck it's like the caribbean so that's just happened in the past 20 years so it's kind of changed you know the imagery we're able to get good imagery so we're able to bring people right down on the wrecks with either divers with cameras or uh robots which has really uh the last few years gotten to be affordable and you know the the camera technology has improved so that's a really neat thing to be able to show people these shipwrecks, these time capsules from the 1800s, because up here they're perfectly preserved in fresh water, 39 degrees year round. And they're in amazing states of preservation. And if you find something on the bottom of the lake, whose property is that? Um, so the state says they own it. Uh, I could go to court and win these wrecks but I'm, I'm just about the history. And I, and so probably the reason I'm involved with, with the DB Cooper case, uh, Robert Richard Levsey missing ships. I just love a good mystery, but instead of watching it on TV, I try to look around me for what's missing and then try to figure out a way to go out and find it. So I don't get involved with who owns it. I just take uh, videos and I put, the information up on my website and i also travel around the midwest uh to libraries and historical societies and give lectures on maritime history and and shipwreck discoveries and and you know why they're important to us today yeah i saw on your website you have a bunch of speaking dates yeah this year well i found a really nice wreck and we came out matter of fact uh, brent ashcroft the guy from wzzm we did the story on uh, robert richard and db cooper in 2015 and we've done a number of stories since and he put together a really nice piece on this schooner i found that's i mean this thing is perfect 
It's the most perfect shipwreck I've seen from it sank in 1891 and masts up flagpoles on the tip of the mast. Everything is there. You could, you could raise it right up and sail it away, you know, so, so perfect. But to find a museum piece like that, I mean, think about finding a building downtown somewhere that's been sealed up since 1891 where everything's perfect. I mean, it just does not happen these days. So, but we, we have one right, right there in Lake Michigan. So I find that I, that that's what really fascinates me and gets me excited. What is that feeling like to, all right, I think there's something down here right below us, but then you actually go down there and you can see either from the robot or from a man in a suit that there's a shipwreck there. What's that feeling like? I think there's, it's, it's a mystery. So when I, I go out with a side scan and I'll get an image, um, for instance, the, the Kimball, the really intact schooner. So I got an image and I went back over to the site a few times and I still couldn't tell what it was. And then my buddy dove down in the fall and took some pictures. Not, I mean, nice enough. We could put it together. And that gave me the pieces I need to go out and try to identify it, which took me about, you know, four or five months. I misidentified it at first, which is always a problem. Um, and then I got the proper identification and we were able to go back down and get some underwater video. So it, it's, it's the problem solving. It's the same thing that attracts people to the D.B. Cooper case. It's, you know, OK, boy, I've got this target. What is it? OK, now I know what it is. What's the name of it? How did it get there? When did it get there? And it's figuring out how to solve all these problems. And I guess that's the the skill set I was trying to bring to the the D.B. Cooper case is a little bit different way of, you know, approaching it. Are you going out this summer to look for shipwrecks? If I can get my boat going. <laughs> I was, uh, we, uh, yeah, I have I've been having some mechanical issues. So, yeah, but I plan on uh, rebuilding the fuel system and the, and the uh, uh, redoing the ignition and, and getting back out there. I really want to hit it hard. Um, you know, it's long days. Most people think it's, it's exciting, glamorous. It's not. You, I've got three computer screens. And you're just driving back and forth. I mean, it's beautiful on the water, but it's uh, it's not too exciting. And you go for you know years without finding a shipwreck, and then you come across one, and it's uh, it's very thrilling. Then the whole process of identification and then sharing the information, because to me that's an important part, is uh, sharing the history with people so they can look and see and understand why why it's important. And this is just a hobby of yours. This isn't your job. Uh, yes and no. Yes. And it's a passion. I would say it's definitely a passion. Like that's my thing. I absolutely love more than anything else is finding shipwrecks and, and then sharing them. Um, and yeah, I do do it a little bit for a living and, you know, and, and anything else I got to hustle to, uh, to do. And I also have a great wife who allows me to do it. So that's the, that's probably the key component right there is having a, a partner who's uh, very understanding and supportive. I definitely get that. Yeah. The better half, I would say definitely in our <laughs> relationship. All right, Ross. Well, if somebody has any questions for you, is there somewhere they can get a hold of you? Is 
michiganmysteries.com the best place for people to check you out? Yes, yes, michiganmysteries.com. There's a form on the speaking dates page, I believe, that'll email me directly. Um, yeah, www.michiganmysteries.com. Um, and yeah, hey, I appreciate you allowing me to come on here and I, I really love your podcast. I think it's a, it's a great thing you're doing. Oh, thanks. We're glad to have you on. All right, Ross. Anything else? Hey, I think we're good. If you need anything else, just give me a holler. Appreciate it much. All right. Will do. Thanks again, Ross. We appreciate it. If you want to see some of the cool stuff Ross is up to, head over to michiganmysteries.com and check it out. He's got some really cool shipwreck pictures on there. And if you're in Michigan or nearby, go uh, check out his speaking dates on his website too. Make sure you pick up a copy of his book, Still Missing, Rethinking the D.B. Cooper Case and Other Mysterious Unsolved Disappearances. You'll find links to his site and his book in the show notes. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or someone you think we should have on the show? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are the Cooper Vortex. Instagram at the Cooper Vortex. On Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Thank you to Ross Richardson for coming on the show and for being patient with me while I moved. Thank you to Russell Colbert for not giving up on me. I love you, bro. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Vortex.